Here's Evan. You are now locked into Radio Juxtapose, the home of contemporary art and culture conversation. Coming up today. Uh, really, it's very, very peaceful. Uh, you see uh, parties. It's like an outdoor festival uh, happening and it's free. You just need to book a flight to, to Beirut. If you want to get straight into that interview, then skip forward to about minute 13. But first, let's catch up with your host, Evan Preco and myself, Doug Gillen. This is Radio Juxtapose. When I found out that we were going to be doing this, I went and I brushed my teeth and I put on deodorant for a podcast. I just did it. And then I was like, what the hell are you doing, man? This is a thing that people are only going to hear. Why are you putting on deodorant? Um, and I guess my, my, my question to you is, do you do that, Evan? Please make me feel normal. I did. I did like make a fresh cup of coffee. I ruffled my hands through my hair. You're setting the scene. You're painting quite a picture here. There are there are a few things that I did in order to see you. Happy Halloween or Brexit Day or whatever the fuck your guys are going through. Today is a very mysterious day, and, and I I almost dressed up for this. I was like, oh, I should put on some fangs and some fake blood, and he'd he'd think, no, this is actually just what post-apocalyptic Brexit Britain looks like. Oh my god. Um, is there any sort of anything happening or what is going on with that oh, it's a shit show yeah it's a shit show we have we have utter chaos at this end and you know what the thing is it's like at least with yours there's a glimmer of hope in everything that's going on you've got little you've got little carrots in the u.s you've got the kind of possibility of impeachment right. you've got a couple of solid candidates coming through that represent the left in the uk we have nothing good that will come from what's happening on the left and it's pretty depressing but yeah brexit still not happened so i guess that's a win we have 250 years of checks and balances that seem to be being used and protected but we'll see i'm so over it i'm so goddamn over it <laughs> i think in our first podcast we were sitting there or like one of the first ones that we did through skype we were sitting there like hey what's up with what's up with trump what's up with brexit i know here we are i know episode number 28 or something like that and we're still at it but you know uh it's been there's been a lot of great art that's been made in accordance to uh, these kind of sociological traumas. And I think what you work, what you're working on, on this particular podcast, I think speaks to that. There is a, a healthy dialogue of, of protest and um, activism that <laughs> I hate saying there's a bright side to that, but there is a little bit of uh, activity that we're, we're seeing. That's, that's so powerful from a global standpoint. There is huge mass waves of people really galvanized and trying to trying to change the the way that their lives are being dictated there's something so empowering about that but i actually i feel and this is one of the reasons i particularly wanted to focus uh, on countries internationally uh, and for this episode we're looking at lebanon in the uk we have protests but i think there's just a real kind of like balls to the wall approach that you're seeing in other places and i'm not saying that we're not doing it right but in terms of the art takeover i think i'm kind of done with the trump portraits i'm kind of done with the I'm kind of done with the the really cheap shots at Brexit, like, you know, or like when people are just doing fuck the Tories and it's like, okay, cool. I understand that sentiment, but where's the galvanized movement and what is this kind of contributing towards? And I I, I think I'm maybe a little bit lost in the, in, in the field on that one. Did you at all 
uh, in the UK hear about the kind of awkward NBA versus China uh, issue that came up a couple weeks ago? No, go on. So um, the Professional Basketball League in America has a extensive and long history with China in terms of uh, sending players overseas for uh, promotional games, uh, product being bought. I mean, it's billions and billions of dollars. And uh, one particular person who works for a team uh, just sent out a tweet in support of Hong Kong, the Hong Kong protests. And this started a huge wrath of the Chinese government banning uh, NBA products from being sold in China. And it put a lot of people in the NBA in an interesting position of defending democracy while also defending their paychecks. And it really created this incredible dark Orwellian conversation about when do you speak up when the citizens of China are the ones who follow your product? And when do you challenge the government? Because it's not like the people who buy the jerseys of these players are the government. They're regular people who enjoy seeing something from America come to China. Um, But how do you frame your conversations with a totalitarian government. It was such a fascinating couple weeks. And obviously, uh, I think the NBA ended up taking sort of a stance like, no, it's freedom of speech. That's what we have in America. And you just need to take it. Did they back the Did they back the statement? Because I missed this entirely, which is annoying because it sounds right up my street. Right, right. Well, uh, some players uh, like LeBron James kind of gave some real half-assed uh, statements. I don't know. I don't know if people in the UK know LeBron James is, but he's kind of the most famous yeah. American basketball player. He kind of gave a little bit of a pro-business sort of stance, whereas the commissioner of the league gave a little bit more of a free kind of democracy stance. But all the while, there was all these players in China on like a promotional tour. So they wanted to be very careful about what they said until the guys came home. But it also had a bunch of Republicans all of a sudden saying defending democracy while they were trying to undermine democracy at home, trying to block the impeachment. It was a very fascinating couple weeks. There's the same argument kind of made as when people target um, the Israeli government for their actions in, in Palestine. And it's that nuance that is the difference between it being... Um, a target at what is quite largely regarded as apartheid, uh, which is dictated by the state into, I'm attacking Israel. So it's right. about, look, I'm not attacking China. I'm a- attacking the Chinese government. The difference is, is so nuanced, and it, especially in, in the age of Twitter, where you're confined to however many characters, 180 characters. If you don't say it exactly the right way, suddenly you've got yourself, you you found yourself backed into a corner. Right. What was it a couple years ago? And I remember Radiohead was going to go play in Tel Aviv. I, and I remember that being very controversial. And the band was like, well, we have a bunch of fans in Israel. That doesn't mean we support the government which is kind of the same thing as like touring America. It's like, well, you don't support Trump. You don't, if you tour the UK, you don't support Boris Johnson. I mean, so it brings up all these interesting dialogues that I still, I mean, like you said, so nuanced. I can't wrap my head around every single one. Social media has created a fervor that is um, so confusing and baffling that you can never find a truth anymore, it seems like. Well, that was... Part of the reasoning behind kind of doing this this series of interviews on on the episode that you're listening to just now, you're going to hear from a journalist based in Beirut uh, who runs a blog and a podcast called Hummus for Thought. His name is Joey Ayoub. I've been following him for a couple of years, uh, particularly at the height of the Syria conflict. Um, I just found him to be uh, a really consistent voice. And we're going to hear from Jad El-Khuri 
who is an artist that you may recognize the name from uh, from the new art coverage from this year, who has been engaging in war monuments in Beirut for the last five years. He's also Lebanese. So I wanted to hear from people kind of closer to the conflict, close, closer to the story than I am, rather than me kind of doing something where I'm going out trying to do the research and then relay it. It's like, look, Let's just turn it into something where you can hear from the source directly. What were some of the things that you went into some of these interviews thinking that either your mind was changed or that you kind of got a new, I don't know, like a new perspective on? Like, what were some of the things that you learned during this whole process? Because I know, it, you know, you you really spent a lot of time on this one. So I kind of wanted to ask you what you got out of it. For me, the, half of this thing is just like a research quest. Whenever I do something like this, it's like, okay, so I've if I'm going to interview someone in the heart of a conflict, I don't want to go into that interview with absolutely no background knowledge of the structure of this conflict or whatever it might be. You have to then start researching about a particular area and that has so much history. And, and Lebanon isn't a, a name that necessarily comes up much, but it has so many layers to it. And it's had a civil war, it's had a war with Israel, but there was something about what's happening now around the country that was a really, really heartfelt, galvanized movement that gave all the signs to be the start of a, a peaceful revolution. When I went further into the conversation with both Jad and Joey, it was just learning about the complicated structures of their political system. What these guys are now doing is coming out and just trying to just get rid of this overly complicated, weighted, divisive, power structure and have this sort of civil democracy and for me that was that in in itself was something i thought like how can people not get behind that in this day and age do you have i i because I, I think about this all the time do you have go-to media that you trust anymore it's like all these things you've got to you kind of got to really work for it you really do disseminating all the noise has been the hardest thing i think for anybody who's even mildly left of center uh in the last four or five years uh it's been incredibly difficult i mean i i'm still wondering if the larger media sources like the bbc or the guardian or the new york times or you know these these institutions that uh i used to trust so much and I still do follow them and pay attention to their, their their reports, but I'm finding it harder and harder to find the the reporters that I really do trust and uh, feel like I'm getting a good balanced information, you know, or s sources from. In the last five years, we have seen a huge curve in how people value and trust the media outlets that are around, you know, and, and they are having to work twice as hard to maintain any degree of credibility. For me, it's like if you are working for Sky or for the BBC, it's like you just got to step up your game. You've got yep. to not be part of this. Absolutely. It's really like flawed because as soon as as soon as you have a hole everyone is going to see that hole and they are going to they are going to tear you apart you know as soon as you drop the ball as soon as you misreport something as soon as you start to lean too much into a bias or something like that and there's a consistent pattern people will spot it and they will tear you apart and you have to be on top of your game people are just so skeptical about how where they're getting their news from now and we're in, we're in a time too where the leaders of the world and the even the the technological leaders, the Mark Zuckerbergs and, and, the, and that crowd, are 
in such a power hungry grab for information more so than any time we've ever been in uh and such a profit over <laughs> profit over any semblance of a whatever it was that they went out to do any kind of greater good any any kind of like collective pool to make the world a better place has completely dissolved i i thought that alexandria cortez's back and forth with mark zuckerberg the other day was that was beautiful it was so beautiful and he couldn't even answer simple questions about the nature of his, his company the nature of his business but also just the the nature of how information is is uh, absorbed by people that use his platform it was it was so shockingly a lie and false naivety that was just i I couldn't believe somebody didn't tap on the shoulder and be like, you got, you got to step down, bro. That was so bad. And how much money is enough? And like, we've already gotten like J Paul Getty darkness before, but like, this is a whole new set of darkness, you know? Uh, I, I don't know. I, so, I mean, I think this just goes into, um, it's exciting to have these conversations because I feel like, um, Going to the source and people on the ground who have perspective is is fascinating and it's helpful for people to start understanding and formulating their own opinions about the ways in which different countries operate. This might not necessarily connect in a coherent manner to the rest of the guests that we've had on, um, That's okay. on Radio Juxtapose, but it... I, I just I, I felt like a, a, the right time to do something. There's a conversation there. If it's not your thing, then, you know, we have a whole bunch of other guests that you can go back and listen to. Check out Revoke. His interview was sick. <laughs> and, you know, you can sit this one out. But if you are wanting to learn a little bit more about some of the things that you're seeing in the news, this is hopefully like a digestible, you know, half an hour conversation that you don't really need to have any previous knowledge or understanding just come in and, and and listen to it and take what you can from it and hopefully it'll maybe shine a light on a region uh, or a part of the region that you hadn't really uh, explored before that's the whole point can you maybe give me a rough breakdown of why we're seeing these protests emerge and are we witnessing the start of a revolution yeah so those are two different questions uh the first question as to why the protests are starting now. So pretty much two weeks, uh, two weeks ago, exactly two weeks ago, on the night of uh, Monday, uh, two weeks ago, we had pretty bad wildfires ravaging across the county, and they lasted for more or less 40 to 48 hours. And in that, uh, in those 48 hours, we lost approx approximately the amount of trees that we would usually lose in a whole year. So we sort of doubled the average, if you want, in 48 hours. And a big reason as to why that happened is government neglect, essentially corruption. Uh, we had the government uh, purchased three helicopters like I don't know how many years ago and they just didn't uh, use them They didn't maintain them so they, they had fallen into disuse and so we had to rely on uh, Greece uh, I think Cyprus and Jordan that uh, sent us some aircrafts and lots of volunteer firefighters and just civilians doing their You know trying to do their best and then we got lucky and there was some rain and the fires were put off So that was two weeks ago and a day later or I think two days later the government instead of sort of reassessing um, Why all of this has happened how to prevent it the next time or anything like that They decided to impose the so-called whatsapp tax a proposed tax on any sort of uh, voice uh, call like WhatsApp, WhatsApp being the most popular one. These two happening at the same time within just the, in the span of just a couple of days from one another 
uh, really triggered quite a lot of uh, anger and backlash uh, from the streets. And so the night uh, of October 17th, that's why it's called now, or at least some people call it October 17th Revolution, uh, you had thousands and thousands of people that came down to the streets in the capital Beirut, but also in the south, in the north, in the east, and in the mountains. And that sort of uh, developed a momentum that ended up taking a life of its own. And now uh, we're two weeks later, and they're still ongoing. Then the second part to that original question was, do you think that we're witnessing the start of a revolution? It's sort of yes and no, in the sense that no, we still have to wait. But some of the things that have already been achieved, I would count as uh, revolutionary in themselves. And the big, big thing that has, I mean, two big things that have happened is, A, you have a decentralization of the protests. So whereas in the past you did have protests um, mainly centered around Beirut, the capital, so you had big ones in 2015 as well, but they were pretty much top down, uh, organized uh, to bring people into Beirut. And the rest of Lebanon, uh, where the rest of uh, the population lives, was sort of not really pay, uh, given enough attention, if you want. And this has changed this time. Now it's completely decentralized. You don't really have any uh, leader organizer. Uh, you have political parties trying to ride the wave, so to speak, but they're not really managing to control anything. And the other main thing that has happened, uh, which is related to that, is that you have a sense of unity, which hasn't really happened at the scale before. So Lebanon is a very diverse country in terms of its religious sects. We have nearly 20 officially recognized religious sects, and uh, there's no real majority. You don't really have, like in most other places in the region, you know, 90% one sect and 10% of the other or anything like that. It's roughly 30, 30, 30, and then maybe 10% uh, for one community or the other. And that sort of, it's that sort of situation. So you have a, a system called sectarianism. Officially, it's called confessionalism, but uh, in Arabic, we just call it sectarianism. Kind of a power sharing agreement, if you want. But what it essentially does is it solidifies uh, religious categories and they become, so your sect becomes the only way uh, through which you're able to identify, politically identify. You cannot divorce outside of your sect, for example, if you, there are some situations where if someone wants to get divorced, they would convert to a sect that uh, supports divorce because their sect doesn't, you know, that, that it's that kind of situation. So what we've been seeing with the, with the protest is you have uh, a major city in the south, like Tripoli, which is majority Sunni, sending its solidarity to a city in the south, a region in the south called Nobati, which is majority Shia. And you have this sort of overt anti-sectarian messaging, uh, which, although did exist in the past in protest movements and that sort of thing, really did not happen at this scale, and that's continuously. Maybe give me a bit more um, context as to what the project was that you did when you visited Beirut again. True. So uh, I should uh, maybe now tell a bit uh, what's happening in Beirut before uh, talking uh, about what the intervention I did. Beirut, uh, 30 years ago, uh, had uh, the war ended. It was the end of the civil war 30 years ago. It has been 30 years where uh, most of the uh, war leaders they have been the politicians in, in my country. Like Sunnit had their leaders, Shiite had their leaders. And uh, the people who lived the civil war, most of them, they kept following those leaders even after the end of the civil war. Today, finally, 
the new generations, the people who didn't live the civil war and who don't accept to, uh, to hate uh, each other just because uh, they are from different religions. They finally uh, are in the streets all together from all religions against these politicians who uh, are for 30 years uh, made, made us believe that we are against each other. For me, it was uh, the first time I see so many people uh, protesting together, more than half of the population, with no one holding a flag of his uh, political party. Everyone was holding the Lebanese flag. And this is very special. It's the first time uh, we witnessed this. Is this driven by a, a youth movement? Has it been bubbling under through social media? Where has, what's triggered this? Well, too many things have uh, triggered this. Like less in less than two weeks, we had uh, a, an economical problem with the dollar. We didn't have dollars in the market anymore, suddenly. Then there was a, a big scandal. People were talking uh, about uh, the prime minister who transferred money, $16 million, while the country is really having uh, problems with the basic necessities. Uh, there was the scandal that the prime minister sent, uh, transferred $60 million to a top model in, in South uh, Africa. Then, directly after that, we had the strike from all the petrol stations. Second day, we have a fire in the whole country. Like, we saw Lebanon with all its forests getting burned. So what can you see more than your country being burned, all of it, to act, you know? And after this fire, instead of, uh, uh, like, the politicians doing something to prevent future uh, disasters like this, they, they gathered to decide to add a tax, uh, a new tax on the people. When they did this, it was the, like, uh, the, the point where people couldn't take it anymore and everyone was in the street very spontaneously. No one has organized it or it, it just happened after too many events coming one after the other uh, and all of them are really too much to take. If there isn't, the, if it's decentralized, and there isn't necessarily one form of leadership coming out. What are the demands of the protesters and what shape do you envision that taking should, you know, they get their wish? You have like, you, we might divide them into the immediate demands and the more long term demands. So the immediate demands that pretty much everyone uh, is asking, and you can hear that in the chants, on the streets, people being interviewed on live televisions, you know, social media, that sort of thing, is essentially for the government to resign. Uh, and for that, what happens after that, it really depends on who you speak to. Some of them want an, imme a, an immediate early elections, other prefer sort of a, a technocratic alternative in the meantime, uh, until the time where elections can be held. So it depends on who you talk to, but essentially resignation of the government is one of the, ma one of the major demands. And the more long-term, and sorry, and this also ties into uh, the whole issue of corruption. So one of the big, big uh, demands that you would hear among protesters, again, on all of these different platforms, on the streets, online and everything, is that we want accountability, but non hasib So that's a, a common slogan. And accountability in this case means that there's, we, that we, there's a lot of uh, public funds uh, that were essentially stolen from the public into the pockets of the bureaucrats, the oligarchs, uh, the warlords, and so on. And there is a move towards uh, ending that, towards having some kind of uh, transparency laws, some kind of uh, laws that would, uh, or even applying laws that allow for the return of these public funds and so on. 
And the more long-term uh, goals, if you want, is essentially the downfall of the regime. And by the regime in this case, unlike uh, most other places in the region, the regime in Lebanon is not one uh, person, is not one government. You don't have a Bashar al-Assad, for example. It's a system. It's a sectar- the sectarian system, the, way, the sectarian way of doing things. So when people say, Al-Shabiri is caught in Nizam, so the people want the downfall of the regime, uh, what they mean by that is the sectarian regime. So we want the downfall of sectarianism. What do they want to replace the sectarianism? Uh, with a civil government, a secular government, a, in which people are elected based on merit, based on you know the people wanting to vote for them rather than a certain number of seats allocated uh, based on sects or anything like that. But again, that really depends on who you talk to. Uh, some might give you s- sort of a vision of a transition phase, like they don't want uh, the abolition overnight or anything like this. But essentially, the overarching goal, if you want, is to get to that state where uh, the president can be from any se- So be- what we have now is the president has to be a Maronite Christian. The prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim and the speaker of parliament has to be a Shia Muslim. And then you have all of the different other fact uh, uh, positions like, you know, general of the army or that sort of thing that also are assigned based on sects. And one of the demands is for that to essentially uh, be abolished. And that was that is the promise of the end of the civil war. The end of the civil war ended on the Taif agreement that was signed in 89 and implemented in, uh, I think, 1990, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and part of the uh, agreement is that they will have to put in place, they will have to transition towards the abolition of sectarianism, towards a secular state. So this was already part of the end of the civil war. But the problem with that is that, I mean, without getting too much into details, there was never any time limit. There was never any, uh, you know, th- there wasn't in the law that you have to end sectarianism within five years or 10 years. So essentially what ended up happening is that the same powers, because of an amnesty law that was passed after the, after the war, the same people who were in power during the war ended up uh, being in power after the war. So you were down there recently and amongst it. Can you maybe describe the the mood? Man, it's a, it's a really really great uh, great experience now to be between the uh, protesters and to be uh, in Beirut. Uh, really, it's very very peaceful. Uh, you see uh, parties. It's like an outdoor festival uh, happening, and it's free. You just need to book a flight to to Beirut. Too many interventions are happening, and. Uh, Everyone is spray painting everywhere, whatever they feel, uh, whatever whatever they need to express. Uh, we have uh, really nice installations happening between the people. Like I saw on Airbnb, uh, zero dollar uh, cost uh, to come and stay at the Ring Bridge, a bridge that used to separate the rich and poor area in uh, in the city. And uh, now the bridge became a football field. People are putting couches there, and uh, it's it's just nice to see people uh, reclaiming the public space. What was your intervention? I saw I saw you pour some colors down and. and- an abandoned, an old, disused uh, cinema, the egg. Yeah. Can you maybe explain a bit about that, the thinking behind that? Yeah, uh, it has been uh, maybe five years. I'm focusing on all uh, war monuments. They are monuments by accident. Uh, they were not built to be monuments. They, uh, they are very special structures in their architecture that were supposed to be something. But when the war started, 
uh, they became abandoned structures and uh, they kept uh, being abandoned until today like uh, they survived the war and today uh, 30 years after its ends we kept seeing them uh, empty no one can uh, reach them and uh, they are mostly owned by people from the gulf or by uh, like big institutions in beirut and uh, those buildings are really huge in the city center uh, we can count them it's like three four big major uh, monuments and they are filled with war traces so uh, i have been working on those monuments since five five years from now and uh, i've done uh, three of three of them and i still had the fourth one to do which was the egg the egg was uh, a cinema before the civil war and uh, uh, when the war started it was uh, abandoned and uh, it's still abandoned until now no one could have ever uh, could have ever uh, came close to the egg uh, they open it sometimes the owners for uh, special events where they rent it for events but now with the revolution it, re it really became a symbol because it's really in the city center in downtown next to the martyrs Square, where all the protests are happening, and it suddenly, by nature, no one has planned it, transformed into a place of debate and uh, art and culture. Like in the egg now, uh, every day there are there's uh, conferences happening, screening for movies. Also on the egg from outside. All street artists, everyone actually who was in the process uh, was spraying on it and painting on it. I couldn't imagine an installation or a project for the egg that could be better than what's happening to the egg right now. As a, you know, a, a leader of the art com community in, in Beirut, in Lebanon, what is the kind of the art scene like there in general? It is, it is very vibrant. Uh, Lebanon, uh, before the civil war, was known to be uh, like Switzerland of the Middle East because uh, it's, uh, it's really an, an open place for anyone to say whatever he wants. It's known in the Middle East to be a place uh, where you can express uh, freely. So the this was what made us special in the area. Uh, we have uh, many museums, many art galleries that are always opening. And uh, the street art scene, I would say like five years from now or maybe 10 years from now, it started uh, really booming. And uh, we started having names and big murals uh, in, in the city. Do you think this is kind of a result of the circumstances in which people live? Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I think uh, the more artists uh, are encountered with uh, uh, unnormal situations, uh, it, it affects them and it uh, made them uh, have this feel that they want to express and let it out more. And uh, this is what's happening here, I think. People are uh, faced with uh, situations that uh, are very, very special. I mean, maybe you could describe the, the mood down there. You said you've been down there. It, it seems to be at least presented certainly quite peacefully. Is that likely to stay peaceful? Um, you know, is this likely to be the, the first peaceful revolution in history? Or is it um, or, or is there danger of this having a tipping point? Oh, I mean, there have been many revolutions, obviously, that have been peaceful. But I would say that... Uh, it really depends on what actions the government takes. I don't really uh, imagine a civil war type scenario because it's too complicated for that to even happen. And I think we've 
gone uh, too far uh, since the civil war ended for something uh, that brutal to just happen again. It's not that long ago. It's only three decades that it ended. This definitely isn't like a reopening of old wounds in any way. On the contrary, it's an attempt to heal those wounds. It's really an attempt to uh, uh, find a way to politically mobilize on all levels across uh, sects, classes, gender, uh, and so on, in a way that has simply not been legally possible before. So up until now, and I mean, still to this day, obviously it's, it hasn't changed yet. The fact that I have a certain uh, political opinion doesn't necessarily matter as much as the fact that I am from a certain sect. It doesn't mean that it's completely impossible to mobilize outside your sect. It just makes it very, very difficult for various reasons that I myself don't fully understand. And so part of the calls for revolution or those a bit more moderate about it, if you want, for reforms, is to create some sort of path towards that that new reality that we're hoping to achieve. To what extent is the idea of this creating a political vacuum accurate or how much of it is just kind of maybe scaremongering? Well, it's it's pretty much entirely scaremongering. The politicians that are threatening with political vacuums are the ones that are uh, in the government. And a political vacuum in Lebanon is sort of a joke because in the past, uh, I don't know, decade and a half or so, We've had up to three years without without with political vacuum, if you want to call it that. We lasted for like two years and a half or something without a president once until Michelin was was elected. Uh, you had parliament extending its own term illegally uh, three times, I think, until the last elections, which were the first ones that I could vote in, for example, even though I'm 28. You have different methods of... Um, fear-mongering that are being used, a sort of carrot-and-stick uh, situation, and that's the carrot. And they're saying, well, at least give us some time to in, to implement these reforms that they haven't managed to implement in a decade and a half now. And the stick is the violence that we see on the streets. So you have some factions that we call Shabiha, which uh, essentially, I guess you can translate as armed thugs, uh, that are sort of just they're there to scare people, uh, beat people, that sort of that sort of thing. And they are they have been uh, going after protesters, especially in the south, in Nabatiye, and in Sur, also in the south. Uh, but we've seen them in Beirut, and we've seen them a bit in the north as well, and we've seen them in the Bekaa Valley in the east and in in the mountains where I currently am. That's the unofficial, if you want, violence because it's not officially sanctioned by the state, but it's the same political parties that are members of the government. And then you have the official violence, which is, you know, the soldiers, the, the security forces, the police, and so on, that don't answer to the same same persons. You have uh, security forces that only answer to the Speaker of Parliament, for example, or de facto anyway. You have those who answer to the Prime Minister. You have those that answer to the Interior Minister. It's it's extremely complicated. I don't I don't fully understand understand all of it. But essentially what it means is that it is very easy for them to uh, to implement violence. What is the role? I mean, we live in an age of uh, misinformation, fake news. What what shape is that taking in this? And um, is it is it something that's actually posing a quite a serious threat? Yes, very much so. Uh, so what you need to understand about the, the media system, uh, media ecosystem in Lebanon is that you have a number of private um, uh, TV channels. You have a couple of uh, public ones, I think. And all of the others are owned by the political parties, the sectarian political parties. These 
channels that have their own priorities. Their priorities is not to cover what's happening on the ground. It's not real journalism in that sense. Uh, been engaging in sectarian scaremongering and disinformation and xenophobia by saying, you know, foreigners are coming into the protests and that sort of thing. Uh, Al Manor and OTV are notorious for, for doing this, especially, and they've been doing it. They are, they are kind of the two biggest uh, parties in government right now, or at least the two most influential ones. And so it's it sort of follows that they are investing much more into this information, if that makes sense. And so they have been sharing fake news, photoshopped uh, images, uh, fake interviews in which they bring themselves the guests to interview that are just with them, uh, you know, that sort of situation. Uh, or even I saw I saw myself and Manar in Beirut, for example, filming a tiny crowd around them to show that this is the, these these are the protesters and the crowds were all just supporters of Hezbollah, whereas the the population that was there, uh, you know, were not. I should say we do have people on the ground that are supporting supporters of political parties. There's no uh, ban or anything like that, uh, and there are many members of these political parties that support our demands, that also want the elections and everything because they, are, they may not insult their leaders, but they will not be happy with the members of parliaments, for example, that represent those leaders or those political parties. So there's a bit of nuance there. A long story short, there's a lot, a lot of this information and that's definitely a big problem now. I'm hearing stories, particularly in, in Hong Kong, about how the the Chinese government are planting in people to come in and disrupt and cause chaos to to really overthrow the the harmony that they are trying to uh, maintain. And are you seeing similar tactics being employed here in Lebanon, or is it relatively okay at the moment? In in, in that, are they playing fair? No, they tried to do this. Yeah, they tried to do this, and it was caught uh, on on uh, cameras. We saw on social media a lot of videos. A police uh, guy in the uniform with uh, another guy uh, wearing like like a civilian, and uh, they they walk together in the street. And suddenly, when they are in the in the area where there's the protest happening, they uh, they separate, and the guy who who is civilian try to make chaos between the people. Yeah, they are trying to do it because we have learned from previous protests that we've done and protests that didn't uh, become as big as this one all the people now protesting in Beirut uh, are doing it peacefully whenever some uh, individuals try to create chaos and try to create fights with the army or the police we have like 400 uh, women they created a group together and they come and stand between the protesters and the police. This is being able so far to stop any kind of transforming this peaceful protest into a chaotic one. So because we know if if we it will be transformed into chaos, uh, it will be uncontrollable. It might end also uh, if the police or the army use force, then no one will go to the street anymore, but the people who will uh, be fighting. And anytime uh, someone try to create chaos, Everyone sits on the floor. Like uh, you see the person who is trying to create the chaos because no one wants this. And sometimes also we saw uh, pictures of people trying to uh, burn uh, tires in the middle of the street. In seconds, uh, other uh, protesters come and nicely ask them to turn them off. We don't need more pollution in our country. And they turn off. They turn them off. It's uh, it's really amazing. It's very special. First time this happens in, in my country to maintain a peaceful protest that long. It's the 12th day to today. How does this, what's going on in, in, 
and, and Lebanon then fit into the global picture? Are we witnessing, you know, sort of almost like another form of a global Arab Spring? I've seen some people um, comment that the, the what is happening now sort of signal that 2020 might be a global 1968 type of situation. Obviously, I don't know. I can't really predict that. Uh, in Lebanon itself, you have some awareness of what's happening elsewhere, especially uh, you do have, most people know what's happening in Hong Kong, but it's not really uh, spoken about uh, on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. You have a bit more awareness when it comes to what's happening in, in, Iraq, in Iraq. Yeah. Um, obviously, because it's closer and it's, it's another Arab majority uh, country. And also because the Iraqi system is heavily influenced by sectarianism as well. And so there is a coincidence of uh, two causes, if you want, coinciding at the same time. And uh, this is sorry, there, I mean, there was a, there's a situation of two causes coinciding at the same time. And this has the potential to link up these struggles. I don't think it, I haven't really seen it happening yet, mostly because Iraqis have too much to deal with already and the Lebanese are dealing with uh, their fair share of problems right now. But I don't know if this continues and if the momentum continues, whether uh, uh, possibilities of linking up uh, happen naturally. How do you feel about this then? Uh, you, you did say the word optimism. Uh, do you feel optimistic about a reshaping of the, the way for the Lebanese structure? Well, I would say that I'm, I'm definitely more optimistic than I thought I would be. Um, I'm someone who's usually a bit cautious. I would say I'm a piss optimist, you know, a bit pessimistic, a bit optimistic, okay. uh, depending on the situation and depending on what we're talking about. Uh, right now, the fact that the core of the system is being challenged, which is the, the corruption, the, the uh, rampant uh, sort of neoliberal capitalistic uh, to the extreme type of situation, sectarianism and so on, it's being challenged in a way that I have personally never seen before. And as I said, uh, most of those participating don't have exact percentage, obviously, but from what I can see, most of them are in their 20s or 30s. And so they haven't really known a Lebanon other than the post, quote unquote, post-war Lebanon, which saw wars anyway, but compared to the civil war, we call it the post-war. So I would say, yeah, overall, I'm cautiously optimistic. I would say that those who are expecting change to happen overnight uh, aren't being realistic about it. But uh, it's good to uh, recognize that there is something that has changed. And that from there we can uh, we can build uh, something different that up until now we just have not been able to. It's new. We never witnessed something like this. It's uh, something we cannot uh, compare to something that happened before. It's it's new. I I have no idea where it will uh, it will go. What will happen? Uh, it's hard to predict in in some something that is first time that it happens in my country. Is this a revolution? Yes, it is a revolution. Of course, a peaceful revolution. <laughs>